1: Welcome to the table where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Darrell Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I have two very distinguished guests with me today. Uh, through the uh, miracle of technology, we're talking to Ahmad Shahada, who is in Jordan. That's not Jordan, Texas or Jordan, Georgia. Okay, that's the country of Jordan, uh, where uh, where he is. Uh, He's already experienced most of the day, and uh, and then Andy Seidel is with us, a formerly executive director for Christian Leadership at Dallas Theological Seminary, and now you are.
2: I am an adjunct professor working at, in extension sites for DT. There
1: you go, and you formerly <coughs> taught a, at the military academy. Is that right? I did. I you, taught
2: mathematics at West Point for okay. four years.
1: Okay, very good. And Ahmad, uh, give us your official title.
3: Okay, I'm the president of uh, Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary, and I'm a professor of theology there.
1: That's so. right, and he's also a distinguished member of the board here at Dallas Seminary. <laughs> right. So we we get to see Ahmad a couple of times a year when he journeys back over and and touches base, base with us. Well, thank you both for being here. Our topic today, because those introductions we gave you no clue as to what we were going to discuss. <laughs> mathematics. That's right. Is uh, has to do with the issue. Issue of war, peace in the Middle East, and kind of where we are, both um, thinking about that, both in biblical terms as all as well as also kind of what the status of things is in the Middle East and what it's like to be living in the Middle East these days. And so, I want to thank y'all for taking the time to come in and and talk with Glad us about this. It. Andy, I'm going to start off with you. Uh, you you came to the seminary with a career out of the military, and some people would say, well. How how does the how do the military and Christianity mix? You know how how do you put war and peace together? How how do you how do you view that? And and I can't think of a better person to ask than someone who's who's spent their life uh, both as a pastor and in the military uh, this question. So how do you put that together? How how do you how do you how do you deal when you come to the issue of war and peace and you think about that biblically and you think about your your full career in the military, how do you put those two things together?
2: Well, I think uh, for me <coughs> it was uh, a relatively easy thing <laughs> because when I went into the military, I went out of high school, I went to West Point, and uh, the values of the military, Christianity was very uh, much a part of that. Uh, a lot of my spiritual growth came as a result of other members of the military who discipled me and helped me. Part of the Officers Christian Fellowship. And, uh, you know, it was a very significant thing spiritually. So the two of them were not spiritually separated at all. There was Mm no divorce there. Hmm. And so uh, a lot of the values of service and of um, protection of the weak, things like that, Mm -hmm. all of those were. Good military values, and they were good uh, Christian values as well. Hmm. Respect for people, um, and so I learned a lot of that uh, strongly in my early part of the military career.
1: Interesting. Well, uh, you know, because because what a lot of people will will assume is, is is that we have the military. I'm gonna I'm gonna state it this way and let you react, and you can push back if you want. Uh, we have the military. Um, really to protect us on the one hand, but also, um, you know, to to fight our battles for us, you know, to go to war. Uh, But my take is from having interacted with military people over the years is that um, the military really sees itself as as existing in part enabling us to keep the peace as opposed to more doing war. Is that – would that be a a – a fair way to think about the way the military. Yeah, I,
2: I would say that's true. Uh-huh. Uh, you don't see an American military. You don't see uh, the aggressive. Let's take over someplace, mm-hmm. and it's more of a protection. Uh, you know, my military experience. Uh, my first was in Korea. This was post Korean <laughs> War, but mm-hmm. I was on the militarized zone between North and South Korea, and so it was a matter of protection. A matter of protecting South Korea. Uh, you also always have to say protecting American interests. Mm-hmm. That's true. Every country does that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <clears throat> I have not seen it as, uh, in a negative sense, mm-hmm. of taking over someplace. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it has been essentially a good experience through mm-hmm. that. Okay. And one that one that I could feel comfortable with as a Christian.
1: So uh, you know the Scripture, of course, speaks of the military in in Romans thirteen as having the power of the sword, which is an element of protection right. of its people right. and that kind of thing. So there's biblical basis for that, and the in and, and the idea of nations having interests that they have to protect is something, uh, to a certain degree, Scripture assumes. So I, I'm I'm laying this groundwork because I think it's important in thinking about um, issues where the, I mean we live in a fallen world. There is conflict. That's right. People Absolutely. people treat each other badly, and and there's protection, and so, that is sometimes <coughs> necessary at a corporate or national level, uh, in terms of interests. Well, let me. I'm I'm gonna. I'm doing some prolegomena here. So um, let me shift to another topic that I think is important, and that is the idea of uh, of just war. Um, that that in the in the background of of. Uh, really even Christian thinking about conflict, there has been mm-hmm. a, a teaching and an idea which many nations uh, embrace, uh, particularly in the West, at least theoretically, uh, <laughs> that that there is such a concept as just war. Just war comes out of a Christian tradition. I think it's rooted mm-hmm. in the teachings of Augustine and others. Um, and it, And most people – have probably heard the phrase, but they don't know what's involved in it. And I have a list here of things, and I just want you to kind of comment on them. I, I, I could have given you an exam and said, yeah. you know, list the <laughs> various right. features right. of okay. just war. But thank but. you for not. Doing that. <laughs> but um, but I, I think one of the one of the main
2: reasons is you go to, to war for a just reason. Mm-hmm. It's not for a selfish reason, that kind of thing, where you're going to enslave somebody else for your own benefit, something mm-hmm. like that. But there's the reason you go. It's got to be just.
1: Yeah, in fact, that's point one. The war must have a just cause and be fundamentally what we might call a defensive war. It is. It is for protection. It is f- to protect certain interests. That kind of thing uh, that are at risk or at threat because of because of some form of aggression or something like that. Uh, mm-hmm. It's protective in that in that kind of way. That's the first category. A uh, second category is it must have a just intention to secure a fair peace for all parties. So that excludes things like national revenge, economic exploitation, right. or ethnic cleansing. Right. Uh, right. For those kinds of reasons, uh, it must be a last resort. That diplomatic efforts, uh, all diplomatic efforts, or at least um, you know sustained diplomatic efforts have been pursued, and it may even continue continue while the, while the war is being, uh, is being pursued because the goal is not to continue to fight but to, but to uh, get to a resolution and get back to a, a state of peace. A fourth one is, although I think this has become cloudier in the modern world, um, in the more modern world. Properly constituted authorities declare it, and the war is to be the work of states. Yeah, this is one of the things well, that's, that's changed.
2: Yeah, that has changed dramatically, mm-hmm. because you have uh, Al Qaeda, things like that. They, they are not states, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they are going to war, and you know other countries are going to have having to come and uh, have conflict with them, and it's they're not under the same rules.
1: Mhm. Yeah, so so some of these, I mean, these, um, as I said, the roots of this go back to Augustine. We're talking about a different time, a different place when there were different realities, uh, but this is generally the way the the uh, doc, the doctrine of just war has been stated. It must have limited objectives. In other words, the goal is not the annihilation of the enemy, but it but really sustain uh, an effort to prosecute a war that has the limited objectives of providing the protection and providing the security or or securing uh, the kinds of just interests that the war is pursuing. Um, it has to use proportionate means sufficient to deter the aggression. Um, and this is another place where the ancient doctrine and the modern discussion run into kind of each other because with the rise of nuclear weapons and the potential oh, yeah. of – Total yeah. destruction. The issue of proportionality becomes a, a pretty important uh, uh, concept to wrestle with. Yes. Um, and then seventh, it must respect non-combatant immunity as much as possible, including uh, wounded soldiers or prisoners of war. Uh, weapons of indiscriminate mass destruction are considered immoral in 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 the concept of just war. So so you don't just you know. Obliterate, theoretically, you don't just go in and obliterate a city or something like that. Uh, again, one of the comparing the ancient teaching to the modern situation, that's one of the things that made our America's use of the nuclear bomb in uh, in Japan controversial. Was because uh, in the in the effort to quickly end the war with a with a devastating act, um, a lot of civilians were killed. And so, uh, but you can't stop
2: there. Yeah, because that decision was made toward the end of uh, World War II, obviously. Mm-hmm. Right. And <clears throat> one of the things that really impacted the U.S. decision was the Battle of Okinawa. Mm-hmm. Because in Okinawa, that was a Japanese island. Mm-hmm. It was it wasn't one that they just occupied. That was part of their uh, nation. Mm-hmm. And what happened in the Battle of Okinawa is that Japanese citizens on that island, not just Japanese military, the military did uh, suicide charges, Uh, some of the civilians joined in with that, but that's also the place where all the civilians uh, that – you remember they jumped off the cliff into the ocean, Hmm. committed suicide? Hmm. That is also the place where you had the uh, kamikazes. Mm -hmm. That's the first time kamikazes really became uh, prevalent. Hmm. And the interesting thing, there's a really interesting book on that, uh, Ripples of Battles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about the impact of various battles on the future and how we fight battles today. Well, one of the things with kamikazes, they did not sink any significant ship, no aircraft carriers. They sunk mostly destroyers mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But what happened is that it it communicated that they are going to die. hmm Rather than you know give up, mm-hmm. and so the question is, would, ja- would Japan surrender, even though we're getting closer and closer and closer, and we're bombing mm-hmm. them, things like that. And they also had radio intercepts of what was going on in Japan. That they were telling they were arming the civilians, and everybody was going to fight to the end. So it isn't as
1: neutral as it looks. Is what no, it's not. Yeah.
2: And so what what the Americans faced is is if we have to invade Japan, you think about the the cost of invading those smaller islands. Right. If we have to invade Japan, it's going to cost. The estimate was at least a million American lives, Mm. and who knows how many yeah Japanese lives. So they have that decision. So what they do is they decide to use the nuclear weapon. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't remember exactly all of the things that they did, but they gave some warning mm-hmm. to it. And they dropped it. Mm-hmm. And then they dropped the second one. And then the Japanese indicated that they were going to surrender. Now, some of the controversy is, did they really need to drop the second one? Yeah, But, uh, you know, I, I – can't really speak to that. Yeah, but you know that uh, caused a lot of devastation. But you know you can firebomb cities. Mm-hmm. Even go back to the ancient world, you set fire to cities, mm-hmm. and they weren't all as yeah. You know, they didn't have the uh, uh, fire people that uh, we do today. Right. Uh, so you know it's there's a quantitative jump. That's right. Yeah. But it's a similar thing.
1: Yeah. Well, the reason you go through this and think about it is that most people don't even think about it. They just think there's war or peace. You know, they don't think about uh, the fact that there are actually people who r- who really do wrestle with these kinds oh, yeah. of decisions in very yeah. serious kinds yeah. of ways, in terms of the consequences. Uh, that are dealt with well those are those are most of the elements that that feed into a just war situation now why paint a picture of, of war and conflict and well that's because in certain parts of the world, Obviously, we are engaged yeah. in in conflict, and 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 places are full of tension, and probably no place is l- as much like that, Ahmad, as the Middle East. Um, why don't you tell people your your own personal background a little bit, so they s- kind of see where you fit into the. In the Middle East story, personally, and then and then they'll have some sense of what perspective you're you're speaking out of, and then tell us a little bit about what it's like to live in Jordan these days with what's going on around you.
3: Okay. Well, my personal background is I uh, I'm a um, Palestinian Arab originally. I, I came to college to the U.S. in in the early 90, early '70s, and I became a Christian there at the University of California, San Diego. And years later, I uh, became a full time uh, ministry, and then went to Dallas Seminary. And, and uh, there was a lot of jokes about a Palestinian being at a dispensational school. <laughs> <all the time laughs> <to that. laughs> yeah, well,
1: I thought the church in Israel were completely distinct, and I guess that maybe that's true.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, lots of stories on that. Uh-huh. But, uh, appreciate my Dallas experience, just to put the Scripture first and my background second, and that gave me so many tools in the present ministry uh, we have with the seminary uh, and establishing the seminary about 25 years ago in Amman, Jordan. Um, and, the, uh, it, it, and of course, it's not easy. It's been a rough road, and um, uh, it's been um, one of the challenges is when uh, even before all the Tensions that are we are presently having, even uh, teaching at the seminary, uh, men and women who come from these Arab countries who hate Israel, and then you have to teach eschatology and to show them from the scriptures how to how to see the grace of God and the faithfulness of God to His Word, to His covenants, and so forth, and and to try to uh, give a balance. And it's been um, an, a good experience in seeing how. Teaching eschatology has been a, a means to communicate grace to all all these different people. You have Palestinians, Iraqis, Syrians, Egyptians, who are uh, Christians, believers who have been just not had the exposure to to think about these issues and and see how so, so <laughs> excuse me so much of their thinking has been affected by the majority religion rather than by scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so forth. So that's been uh, that's been a, a good experience. And of course, the let's uh, uh, of course there's so much to talk about, but obviously we have to uh, cut short. But uh, going to coming to what we are going through right now in the Middle East, it, it's it's unprecedented um, in 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 several ways. <coughs> excuse me, several ways. Excuse me for my little bit of a cold here, mm-hmm. but. Uh, in, in several ways you have, it's, uh, the Middle East is so divided right now <laughs> politically so that it's it's just so many groups are against each other, and it's like the, the enemy of my enemy is my enemy, uh, and that's all over the place. Uh, and uh, there have been some unprecedented uh, people who are been traditionally opposing each other standing on the same side uh, together, uh, let's say, ex- against one extremist group. Uh, Nations that normally don't stand together are standing together, Hmm. and and so forth. Uh, And I'm I'm limited in what I can say, but this is uh, happening.
1: Um let, let me let me let me see if I can g- give a little bit of context for people cuz most people just know there's conflict in the Middle East and, and and that kind of thing but they don't know some of the history that goes behind this and I'm hoping Ahmad that you can help us a little bit with this so that people kind of understand where some of the tensions were and I'm going to take us back to the beginning of the 20th century when the Ottoman Empire um, basically broke up and um, and Nations were created out of that residue, and really, in many ways, some of the problems that exist exist because of the way those boundaries were were drawn. Is is that a fair starting point for
0: some of what we're talking about? This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there.
3: Yeah, that's, that's true, uh, and uh, if you look at the map geographically, you, you wonder how these territories, how these borders came to be, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and it was basically of the French protectorates, what they called and the British protectorates, so um, Jordan um, and Saudi Arabia, um, maybe Israel were under the British, mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me, and so was Iraq, but Syria and Lebanon were under the French. And so there's that that background there. Um, So yeah, that's true. And
1: so it's put together combinations of people into nations that were, to some degree, I'm going to be trying to be descriptive here, so people will get it, um, artificially created into a nation, and you had mixtures of people who 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 struggled to get along. Fair enough.
3: Yes, that's true. Exactly. Uh,
1: And these produced regional pressures. Uh, Within these, I mean, you don't even have to put Israel in the mix um, uh, because we're talking about a time when Israel as a nation didn't exist, of course. Um, And you had this mix uh, uh, of countries with these, with the different, um, with the different parties within Islam. You know, some a lot of people don't even know that there are different parties within Islam uh, uh, trying to exist side by side, and they had tensions with each other. Yes. Uh, and so now that's ma- part of the reality, right?
3: Now, the majority of the Arabic-speaking world would be the, the Sunni Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, now, Iraq, the majority of Iraq would be Shiite Islam, but mm-hmm. that's on the eastern side of the, of the, Arab, uh, of the Arab countries. Mm-hmm. And Iraq would be on the <laughs> towards, um, is a neighbor of Iran, which is mostly Shiite. Um, so now the, the tension is we've, we've got, uh, with Iran's Um, penetration into dominating Syria and having uh, Hezbollah in the south of Lebanon. So you have Shiite penetration into Syria and Lebanon, and and then recently in Yemen. So there's this going on, and uh, Sunni Muslims don't like that, and so they're reacting to this, while also there's a tension between Sunnis and Sunnis, uh, represented by um, the tension between ISIS and, uh, and the moderate Sunni states. Uh, so that's given more tension to the situation, and then you have um, um, Israel siding with some of the Sunni states against another Sunni uh, extremist group, uh, while uh, the, the, the Shiites are st- uh, on the side of some of the uh, Sunnis in Iraq to fight this other, the same Shi- uh, Shi- uh, Shiite group. and. And it's it's really complicated. Yeah, <laughs> you know,
1: it sounds like. Yeah. I'm, in fact, I, we don't have a visual. We might need one uh, to right. to map out with colors uh, what's going on here. And, but and I, I actually think this is important because part of what it, it says to people is is that when you when you say the word Islam, you're actually dealing with. it's a huge amount of people that we're talking about in the region but they're but they aren't all it's not it's not one block it's not one thing mm. they're they're different expressions of islam with different mixtures of of uh, if I can I'm gonna say it this way, it may not be the best description, but of peace or violence mixed into it, which which then produces um, combustible elements within these countries. And as I said, we've hardly said a word about Israel yet in any of this. Um, yes. and, and so uh, I, I think that's an important part of the picture that it's that it's important that that people get. Now, you add to that mix, coming in, you know, with the with the with the founding of uh of Israel in the nineteen forties, you add that into the mix mm-hmm. and the Arab reaction and Palestinian reaction that came with the establishment of the nation of Israel in, in this area and all that did was add fuel to the yeah. to the smoldering fire.
3: Right. Exactly. Now most of Islam is, is Sunni Islam, ninety uh-huh. percent. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, Shia most Islam would be the minority. Uh-huh. And, and most of the Arab countries, that's 22 countries, from Morocco all the way to Iraq, uh, Morocco in, in, in Africa, all the way to Iraq would be Sunni Muslim. Um, hmm. So um, Iraq would be the only Arab country that's uh, majority people are Shiite. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So that's what you have. What,
1: what if if you were to help people kind of summarize the difference between Sunni and Sunni and Shiite? What would that uh, w- is there a way to summarize what that difference would be?
3: Well, the, uh, essentially, it, there's a difference. <coughs> it's a difference in what actually happened in history, and what uh, Shiites wish happened, but did not happen. Okay. So uh, the, traditionally, the the um, the. Uh, Establishment of the caliphates or the those caliphs that took over after Muhammad died, uh, uh, was one thing, and Shiites feel it should be should have been a different line, uh, rather than the, this is uh, a prophetic
1: line that you're talking about, or yeah. <laughs> what, what 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 you used a technical term here that wasn't English, so I'm I'm asking you to translate it for it's us. A family
3: line, wasn't oh it? yeah, a family it, line. That's an, Islamic thinking. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the uh, Rashid family, the Rashid Khalifa, took over after Muhammad okay. uh, for reasons that nobody fully knows for sure. Uh, Where the, the Shiites feel it should should not, have been, should not have been given that way, and and then with history, there's been change. Differences in their in their beliefs a little bit. They still believe in, in Muhammad and the Quran as the same book, uh, but they um, they feel that the authority. Um, or the that should belong belongs to the uh, to the Shiite uh, understanding and not to the traditional classical understanding. So, so, so
1: this is a family feud in in, yes. in, in its roots. In terms, huh. yes. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay, Andy. Uh, so you you look at this and and from from the outside as as American and someone who's who's also been involved in the military. And what do you see uh, going on as you think about? Um, the the chaos of whether we're thinking about it from the historical point of view or kind of where we are now. <laughs> How's no, that for an open-ended right. question? No, that,
2: <clears throat> you know, it, it's, it's so similar to so many things. Some of it has to do with bad government, mm-hmm. just, you know, bad government and, um, you know, one group oppressing another group or one group keeping another group down, one group favoring its own, um, you know. Saddam Hussein was like that, but most of the rulers tend to be like that. And so, if, if there's some reason to discriminate against another group, they'll do that. And so, you have just boiling up of all of these tensions. And as uh, Ahmad said, that's a, a huge group of people, mm-hmm. and they have all kinds of uh, historical and current reasons to be, you know, upset with each other. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, You know, originally as I was thinking about it, it's sad that here you have a a tribal group, but you know, some of them are against each other too. Hmm. And so now you have uh, one group that for a religious, particular religious view is oppressing, you know, so many of them. Hmm. Uh, ISIS is basically a Sunni group, if I understand correct – I'm sorry, a Shia group, if I understand correctly, or Sunni. And what happens is now they're oppressing Sunnis as well as Shi'a's, and so it's it's
1: been like that through the years. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And 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 Jordan occupies an unusual position in all of this Mm -hmm. as a as a country. Is is that not true? It 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 seems to have it it seems of of many most of the Arab countries. Perhaps Egypt is in similar category to have to have managed being a part of this mix relatively well and, and been one of the more stable uh, yeah. countries uh, in the region. Uh, but it's feeling pressure now too, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it, Yes and no. It's interesting what's happening. Of course, Jordan, as you know, has the longest border with Israel, right. Israel is to, to the uh, west of it and Iraq to the east. You've got Syria to the north, and that, that, that pressure of, of refugees coming into Jordan. And then Saudi to the south, and like you've maybe heard it said, it's Jordan is between Iraq and the heartland. <laughs> 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 uh, but it's amazing; has been amazingly stable. And one, you know, it's it's interesting. But some of the analysis has been that, um, that actually Jordan is now more stable. One one main reason is because when Israel became a state, so many Palestinians uh, immigrated to Jordan and majority of the Jordanian population is, till this day, has been Palestinian and not Jordanian. Hmm. And so it's been a polarity, uh, uh, Jordanian-Palestinian. But now, with the, so many refugees from Iraq and Syria, it's changed. Uh, hmm. it's hmm. And So now the, the minority group is no longer a minority. It's more e- equal. Uh, there's more groups, and they're more equal now. They gave Jordan... Uh, more stability, and the government of Jordan is looking to give the Jordanian citizenship to the Iraqis and to the Syrians, and they're finding better jobs, better life, and they want to stay in Jordan. Hmm. So, Jordan is, is actually, in a way, stronger, though there's been this uh, this amazing pressure. Actually, in the last 20 years, uh, Jordan's, po- Jordan's population uh, more than doubled uh, that way. And so, uh, it, it's interesting, and so Jordan typically has been kind of a country of refuge for so many people. Uh, the Lebanese before that, the, or it began with the Palestinians, then the Lebanese and the Iraqis, and a lot of Libyans came in, a lot of Syrians now coming in, and it's given Jordan um, it, it's sort of a, a picture of being, let's keep this country, it's, uh, at least keep a country where we can go to. Mm-hmm. And although it looks like it's... Uh, it, like, it, it could be next, but by God's grace, it's been so far uh, stable uh, this way. So we're thankful for that. And one amazing uh, byproduct that was not planned by ISIS or anybody is we've, we have more students from these uh, refugees. They come and from these countries, and they come and become students at the seminary. And oh. it's, it's amazing God's way of preparing people for these countries to go back and serve uh, and, uh, you know, Being more equipped. And so we will love it. It's great. We just uh, need more scholarship funds for these. (laughs) these, Oh, wow.
1: That's terrific. Uh, You know, it's interesting. I know a little bit about the history uh, of the seminary, and uh, it was interesting. There was a time in which uh, you were. Educating people literally from all over the Arab world, and then things got tightened down a little bit, and so that became harder. And now uh, there's a new form of recruitment that that's emerged uh, through the circumstances that's, that's yeah. got the got God bringing them into the country, and therefore uh, they have access again to the to the education. Well. I, I, we aren't going to solve the, the Middle East crisis in this podcast, so I, I'm going to try. But I did want some background for what we were going to discuss uh, in place so that people can understand. Um, the confusing thing, because I think – and now I'm speaking particularly to Americans who are listening to this – I I think sometimes Americans go – first of all, we're kind of slow to get our hands around what goes on in different parts of the world. And uh, particularly when it comes to Islam, we tend to think of Islam as one singular thing. Uh, We don't realize the differences that exist within Islam, the tensions that exist. Uh, amongst Muslims, um, and how that is a part of what's going on here that makes this such a difficult, um, uh, difficult reality to deal with. Um, I do have one more question for you, Andy. That's kind of a background question, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna switch over and, and begin to ask the question. So, how do Christians function in the midst of this? Um, and that's this: um, when someone like you, who's in the when when you're in the military, and you go into this. Um, the military really makes uh, quite an effort to make sure people have a s- kind of a sense of this history and these tensions and where they're coming from don't they, don't they uh, do some uh, preparation for people who are you know going to be stationed in these locations to get, give them a sense of what it is they're walking into in terms of the cultural background and realities of what they're facing
2: oh yeah they they try to do that uh-huh. especially uh, post world war 2 uh, they've had to do that. Um, Vietnam, they did uh, considerable um, instruction of us, uh, partly about the people, but recognizing the uh, insurgent aspect of the war, mm-hmm. um, very, very strict on how we related to the people mm-hmm. and uh, respected them. and. Uh, so yes they they do they try to do that a problem is you, sometimes you get caught and you're you're coming from behind and right. trying trying to catch up on uh-huh. what we know so just like now we find ourselves uh Supporting uh, the same thing that Iran is supporting in one case, and being against it in another case, and it's just—it's
1: very complicated in that situation. Huh? And, and so, uh, can you fill that out a little bit uh, in terms of, of, of what we're looking at? So, it, depending on where we are in the region and the nature of the regional conflict, we are—we are in some cases uh, supporting, and in other cases against. Is that yes. where we find yes. ourselves? in? Yeah. And and. and
2: yeah, I mean that's that's very very difficult. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then you have uh, you also th- this is a new day because uh, the media is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the media is right there, mm-hmm. and so the way that you relate uh, to people from the country, whether they are friends or, or enemies. Is very very significant because it's 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 reported immediately. It's immediate. reported immediately. Yeah, uh, we went to a, a huge amount uh, as we understood the uh, counterinsurgency issues uh, in Vietnam, uh, not to have um, uh, casualties among civilians. Mm-hmm. Because it just, it, you know, it might uh, make, th- first of all, they didn't need that because yeah. they, they were not against us. But secondly, it might cause them to go to the other side. Mm-hmm. And so it, it gets to be very complicated. So something happens, you've got a media person right there. Mm-hmm. And that it's even more so now in the Middle East, some of the wars in uh, Israel, you know, there's media on both sides of the battles. And I... I you know, have seen a number of times that that is used by one side or the other to say, "Oh, look, you're killing civilians," and this kind of thing, and so it it gets to be very, very difficult, and I think the U.S. works very hard to try to uh, educate its soldiers and uh, about the issues that are going on in in the country so that they can relate to the civilians uh, well, because. In the counterinsurgency things, the enemy hides among the civilians. Hmm. Now, with ISIS, that's a little different hmm. because they, they have changed uh, the situation. The insurgents, they, they weren't trying to um, hold on to territory or something. They were just trying to fight and kill uh, their enemy, which in, this, in Iraq was us. Now ISIS, is they're going to have a caliphate and all of that. They have to have territory. So, this is uh, interestingly taking kind of a step back mm-hmm. to a situation where you are, uh, and they are saying that they are a nation now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Al Qaeda didn't do that. Mm-hmm. They were just a terrorist organization mm-hmm. and others like that. And so, for them, it wasn't a matter of conquering territory and holding that territory. With ISIS, it is. Mm. Because if they can't hold the territory, they're not a nation. Mm. So we're in a very complicated situation.
0: Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu thetable. Join us next week for part two. Dallas Theological Seminary, Teach Truth, Love Well.